This uh, last year of my life has been the most challenging I've had so far. I'll tell you what happened, but it's not what you think. Uh, so in November of last year, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. No family history, sudden onset, and if I were being honest with you, at the time, I was fairly shocked. I, um, I didn't know what to think about it. A couple weeks later, I found my bearings and went after it and figured out what I had to eat, how much insulin I had to have. Like, I, I dialed in a routine. And so I would tell you, over the last six, or actually nine months now, as they've taken long-term blood sugar readings for me, I'm in the same place that a normal person would be. So I'm, so, like, I'm going to kick its butt. I'm not worried about that. But what has been battered in this process is an image of myself that I've held for years because I've believed uh, about myself that I'm a bit of a tough guy, right? Um, not a beat you up like a Jason tough guy, right? I don't know any martial arts. Uh, the kind of tough guy that's like, hey, if something has to get done, I'm going to do it. If that requires a lot of hard physical work, I'm not afraid of that. I grew up doing that. I'll work as hard as I have to as long as I have to, and I won't stop. I'll work long hours if it's not physical work. I'll do what has to be done to get done um, what I have to do. If that means that I don't eat all day, that's what I'll do. If I just eat one meal, that I told my body that I was in charge. I'm a tough guy. You'll listen to me. And if I want to feed you late at night, you'll get some food. Otherwise, be quiet. If I was sick, I didn't care. I would just work because I was sick. All of that, all of that has changed. Uh, the, the closest thing that I've ever experienced to that before um, happened seven years ago. And it's just, it was, it was a small thing um, but something that happened during it kind of is uh, impacting me now. So seven years ago, I was having what you might describe as heart issues. I don't know. I, I put up with it for a long time, and then it got bad, and I was like, maybe I should talk to my doctor about this. And I went, and I talked to my doctor, and he said, Blair, you're having panic attacks. And I, I thought he was messing with me because I said, well, that's funny. I don't feel any anxiety. I don't feel any stress, I think you're wrong. Now, I don't know how your doctor responds to being told by a layman that he's wrong. Mine doesn't like it. And so he, he kind of pushed back a little bit, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, um, your body will record when you've reached a limit, and you might not feel it, and you might not think it, but it will put you down if you don't listen. So I made a few minor adjustments that he suggested, and all of the symptoms went away. Personally, I think he got lucky because most of my life, I've been ignoring what doctors tell me to do because that's what tough guys do, right? But I tried it this once, and it seemed to work out, and I, I remembered what he said. Uh, it was interesting to me because uh, one of the books that my wife um, was asked to read during her counseling is a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's, a, it's about 
what happens to you that you might not register in your feelings, it might not register in your mind, but your body is keeping track of what's going on and it will keep the score and it, like what my doctor said, it will put you in your place. So I, so I had this experience in my background, but I've had 50 years of believing I was a tough guy. And on big things too, not just small things, big things. So I've, I've told myself for years, stress doesn't touch me, I kinda like it. I live on it, bring it, it doesn't matter. That's when I, I do my best. I'll just lean into stress, doesn't touch me at all. Uh, I, I can face conflict, no problem. I don't like it, I think people who like conflict are disturbing. Um, so I, I don't like it, but I can deal with it. It doesn't, like, I'll be okay is what I've said this whole time, which is good because I'm in a role where sometimes conflict comes my way and I've got to deal with that. And I've always told myself that the unknown, this, like the things that you can't be sure of, that you have to face in life, that sometimes stir up fear in your heart, that doesn't have any impact on me at all. I kind of like it. I like the unknown. I like facing it. I like the experience of it. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, one of the things that happened to me in my routines is I still wanted to do physical work. And I would do hard physical work. And... Um, there were several episodes where I found myself shaking. I couldn't stop it, didn't know what was going on. And when I did a, um, a blood test reading, I was so low, I was like in danger of going into a coma. And so the, the doctor's like, maybe you need to get a continuous monitor. I have one in my arm right now. It goes to my phone. It, can, it tells me everything that's going on all day long with my blood, which has been really helpful for me to manage it. But... It's also uh, revealed some weird anomalies because I have routines that work. I know they work. I can see them work over time. But there have been some times in my life where the day has started and my blood sugar went up and then kept going up the whole day, like in, pla in, in places that it shouldn't be. So I'd actually give myself more insulin. I would feed myself more insulin to try and get it down and nothing would cut it. Nothing would touch it. And uh, this was very weird because I knew that I was following my routines. I hadn't varied. I know what I should have been getting, and I wasn't getting that. And so out of concern, uh, Tracy and I started to do a little bit of reading. And uh, we discovered something about stress and the condition that I have. It impacts it. Actually, stress impacts people in a lot of different ways. It messes with me in two that are significant. I'll put a little slide up that I, I circled. In two ways, one of them is the stress actually eats up the insulin that I give my body at a faster pace than if I didn't have stress. And then the second thing it does is it produces the glucose and puts it into my blood. So instead of the insulin removing the glucose at a pace that's good for me, it's, it's removing the insulin and adding glucose. And so I was having these, these days where nothing changed, like my routine was the same. But when I look back and I realize what was going on, I was under a lot of stress that day. 
and my body was keeping the score. There were times when this happened, when there was conflict going on with people. And again, I told myself, no big deal, I've got it. But I was looking at my monitor and seeing it go like this all day. And the, the only time, the only time it got better is when I went home and I rested, which was another blow to the ego, right? Oh, tough guy need a nap? Like, yeah, I do. Leave me alone. Like, I, I don't know what else to do to get this to stop. And uh, probably the, the most disturbing for me was that there were a few there were a few times where none of that stuff was going on. There were no issues of stress. There were no issues of conflict. All it was was that Tracy and I are facing a lot of unknown variables right now, and we were trying to work through how to think about how to plan when you don't know. And, and, and we didn't know, and I could see... <laughs> my body keeping a score on that. And I realized that I was struggling with stress and fear and issues with conflict with other people. I gotta tell you, um, it was hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow, but I was looking at what I would call quantifiable data that told me I was not the person that I thought that I was. That this stuff really did have an impact on me and that I was gonna have to find a different way to process. So it was during this time I came across uh, a talk of one of my favorite uh, rabbis. Uh, his name is Dave, David Ra um, Rabbi David Foreman, uh, he has a website that he hosts. A lot of rabbis uh, put stuff on that website, so I listen to a lot of them, but he's, um, he's up there for me. Except he had a talk that normally I would have gone right by. One, it was an hour and 20 minutes long, and it was on the topic of fear. And I didn't think I needed to hear anything like that, so why would I spend some time with that. But now I was confronted a couple months ago, I was confronted with this idea that I might have this thing going on in my heart. And so I decided to give it a listen. And I, I want to share with you uh, what I learned uh, from that talk, uh, what I'm trying to integrate into my life right now. Uh, I don't want to assume that you have fear that has to be dealt with. I don't know that. All I know is that I've been given a different kind of tool that helps me in the process. And if it could be helpful for you, I'm hoping um, that you'll use it. Uh, now this rabbi has this thing where he creates pile upon pile upon pile upon pile of ideas. And in the last 10 minutes, he pulls on a thread and all of the piles make sense. And only then do you remember from 40 minutes ago why in the world he said that? Because he says a lot of stuff and then he just leaves it there. I love that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff. But we have 25% of the time, so we can't do that. Uh, I'm just going to point out some stuff. I've, I've looked into it. I, I believe what I'm about to tell you is accurate and true, but you're more than welcome to go and dig into it yourself. Um, 
the premise of his talk is this simple. He was reading some ancient rabbis who wrote commentary about the Torah. And uh, they were talking about some different sections of Scripture, and they concluded that the best way for us to face fear, the best way for us to look it in the eye and to kind of face it down is to confuse fear. They said, hey, if you can figure out a way to confuse fear, you're going to be doing really good. But they didn't explain it, which was confusing to him because he thought that was something that needed explaining. All they did was point to some sections of Scripture. And so he went there and he started digging in. And I want to take you to some of those sections of Scripture too. Because there's some interesting things that um, I've read over and over and over and I never understood it. Like I didn't understand that's what was happening, that's what was going on, and the significance of it. So I want to take you to Exodus chapter 19. And in Exodus chapter 19, uh, God has freed the children of Israel. He's brought them into the wilderness, and they're about to get a special kind of visit from God. God is going to come to uh, Mount Sinai, and he is going to reveal a whole bunch of important stuff to them. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. He's going to give them other laws. He's going to give them how to design a tabernacle. He's going to help them figure out, if you want to be a nation who honors me, I'm going to reveal all of this stuff to you. And so he's got this moment of special revelation set up for Israel. You're going to get to meet this God whom you worship. So um, in that process, God actually meets with Moses before it happens and gives him a warning. This is how it's going to go down. This is in verse 9 of chapter 19. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Moses, I'm going to back you up. I'm going to give people some evidence to believe in so that they'll trust and follow you. What's the evidence? Because it's a little weird. Like if you consider your five senses, think about this for a minute. If you were using your five senses to believe in something, which sense do you think would be the most logical sense for you to use to cement somebody believing something? Sight. How many of you have heard seeing is believing? You've heard somebody say that before. Sight. That's off the table. Do you see what he's using here? You're going to hear me speaking. He's using sound. Okay, so he gives him this warning that that's going to take place. But then what gets described, you kind of have to figure out what's going on here. So down in verse 16, it, like the day is now here. The third day has come. This is kicked off. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. He said it was going to be dense. And a very loud trumpet blast. The scriptures actually say in the Hebrew, a shofar. Do you guys know what a shofar is? It's a, it's a ram's horn where a guy would take and, and make really loud sounds on a ram's horn. And... Um, so that's what's being described here, and the question is, okay, he's blowing on a ram's horn. What's the outcome? Well, we'll look at what happens. At the end of verse 16, it says, 
everyone in the camp trembled. Why would blowing on a shofar cause everybody in the camp to tremble? You have a few options. One, the first option is that it, it means that God's going to come. And so the warning of that causes people to be afraid because they don't really know. There's the unknown thing of what happens when God comes. Or there's a second option. And the second option is the one that the rabbis believe. Because here's, here's something weird. Um, in Israelite, um, there's some Israelite holidays that take place. And in the Israelite holiday, out of this moment in the scripture, they're told to remember one thing. They're told to remember the sound of the shofar. I'm telling you, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's dense cloud, there's violent shaking going on, and you're supposed to remember the sound. Why? Because the rabbis believe that this sound is the sound of God's voice. That's the only thing that makes sense. There was no, there's no person ever named to be blowing on this thing. And as you'll see it described here pretty soon, there's going to be some more evidence that indicates that this is how God is revealing himself to people. It's this blasting sound of a shofar, the only way that they would know how to explain it. Why, by the way, are they having to do this? Why is God covering the mountain with a dense cloud? See, we're told once where Moses is able to glance the back of God as he's walking away. And it says it made him glow. It literally changed his appearance from that. God is too powerful, too majestic, too incredible. You could not see him. So God was protecting Israel by creating a dense cloud, but he wanted them to understand he was presence. And so there was this loud, blasting noise. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Because the Lord descended on it in fire, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled. What, is that, what does that sound like to you, by the way? Does anybody, when they read all of that, do you think, that sounds a little bit like a volcano, right? If you were standing next to an active volcano, how would you feel? That's what they're doing right here. So just put yourself in their shoes. This is going down. But then 19 says this. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. How does a trumpet grow louder and louder? We only know of two ways, really. You either put more energy in to get a louder sound, or the sound comes closer to you. You've had that experience where you've been on a road and you've heard a siren off and it comes and then it goes. It gets louder as it's near you. Like, what's changed? The distance. <laughs> Look what happens. In verse 19, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. It's all, it's all part of that same deal. This is the sound of God. And verse 20 tells us that God finally descends and is sitting on top of Mount Sinai where he starts to speak. So the, the voice gets louder and louder and louder and it's resonating. And with that voice, 
God gives them the Ten Commandments, which Moses brings down. By the way, Moses is going to make several trips up and down this mountain trying to help the people figure out and stay calm with what's going on here. Brings down the Ten Commandments and then um, sees what's going on. And this is in verse 18 of chapter 20. This is after the Ten Commandments have been delivered. He sees this. Um, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. Seems like a reasonable response, doesn't it? Seems like a reasonable response. They would tremble in fear. Now, I want to think for just a second um, about fear. I want to think about what happens to us when we get afraid. Um, and, and let's see, maybe there's been moments where you've been afraid and you can identify it. See if these things have happened to you. I would say, number one, the first thing that seems to happen is there's a shot of adrenaline. Like there's, some, there's like a jolt in you that lights up your senses. You, you are heightened, you're aware of something not great going on, and you are like fully awake and in the moment. A sense of adrenaline kind of rushing. The second thing that happens is that there's a little bit of confusion. You're not, you're not really sure what to make of what you're looking at. What do you do with this? How do you respond? What's the best course of action? You don't know because it's unknown. It's, it's in this case, it was a cloud was covering it. They couldn't see what was happening. It's, it very much describes the way we often face life. You can't see down the road. You don't know what's there. You can't see what's coming. And so with that confusion, fear settles in. And then the last thing that takes place, there's like a sense of fight or flight. Like I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm heightened. My senses are ready to act. And my action is either I'm going to fight you or I'm going to get away from you. The end of verse 18, this is what it says about the children of Israel. They stayed at a distance. They had a moment of fear and they chose flight. Like, I'm going to get away from this. I don't understand this. I don't like this. I don't feel good about what's happening here right now. I'm getting away. And they pulled back. Now here, it gets interesting. Moses sees this, and he says this in verse 20 to them. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Okay, so which is it? You... Like, you don't want me to be afraid, or you want me to have the fear of God with me. What's happening here? Well, these are actually two different Hebrew words for fear. The one um, that he says, I don't want you to be afraid, is the fight or flight one. Like, I I don't want you to be so filled with confusion that you'll run from me. I don't want that. What I want instead is the word that we would best understand this as awe. I want want you to have a sense of awe about me 
that would allow you to engage with me. That's what he's going for. And uh, the rabbis looked at this and they're like, okay, this is fascinating stuff. Is there anywhere else in the text where we can see this conflict between awe and fear going on? And they thought they found a prime example early in the text. I think they're right. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have decided to break the trust of God. And they are full of fear. We know that because we're told so, and we also see their action. This is verse 10 of chapter 3. I heard, this is Adam speaking. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid, so I chose flight. I hid from you. But did you guys see something really interesting in that section of Scripture right there? How did Adam and Eve experience God? They heard him. In fact, if you go up in verse 8, it says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Does God have a body? I don't know why. But for most of my life, when I've read that section of Scripture, I imagine that what they heard was the sound of God's footsteps walking through the garden. Maybe him brushing bushes. Maybe it was wind or something like that. The rabbis think that the sound of the Lord is the same sound that people were hearing on Mount Sinai. That it was a trumpet blast. That it was this sharp loud sound of God that when he spoke and said, why aren't you where you're supposed to be? They would have understood this. And they would have heard the voice of God and known who he was and how powerful he was because of this. But they chose fear. And the rabbis had this question. What would have happened in the life of Adam and Eve, if when they heard the voice of God, they had responded with awe and not fear? What would they have done instead? Initially in verse eight, when they heard him walking in the garden, they could have called out with their voice to this voice that they heard in the garden, reached out for him and found a way to get close. Here's the difference, let's put this up on the screen. Let's just paint the difference between awe and fear. Because in some cases, they're, they're kind of similar. When you experience a moment of awe, where something is just incredible, awesome, amazing, a moment that you've dreamed of having and now it's happening, is there a little bit of adrenaline going on? You're getting to meet somebody you've always wanted to meet. You're getting to go to that concert you've always wanted to go to. You, you're standing and looking at something that God created that you can't believe how beautiful it is and you're in awe. There's a little bit of adrenaline, right? Is there also some wonder? Now this is a little different. Like there's still some confusion because it's hard to process. I I don't understand how big the universe is. I don't understand God's character all the time. Like I understand it in knowledge, 
but I don't understand why he would love me. That's, that's confusing to me at times. I wonder in the, pro, in, the, in the thinking of that sort of stuff. And so there's, there's a little bit of place where they overlap, where there's some adrenaline and there's some place where it's just hard to process. It's hard to understand what's going on. But here's where it changes. Awe causes you to draw closer to God. It causes you to reach out with your voice to the voice that God has given and you find a way to get closer. Now in both cases in the scripture here, Adam and Eve, the nation of Israel, they both chose to hide. They both chose to withdraw. They both chose that fight or flight and they got away from God. And honestly, I think it's pretty reasonable. I, I, I clearly understand why they would have made those choices. If you were standing next to something that felt like a volcano, the earth was quaking, there was lightning and thunder, there was, it looked like fire in there, in the skies above this mountain. Wouldn't it be reasonable for you to have a little bit of fear? It's reasonable for me to understand why Adam and Eve, who had just disregarded God's instruction, would have a sense of fear. It makes all the sense to me in the world. In fact, I think stuff being reasonable is part of the problem. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple weeks ago about a situation that... Um, he was facing in his life, and he said he was struggling to find a way to remain hopeful because so many times in his life, the bad thing had happened, and he, he knew he couldn't discount it. said the doctor told him this was a possibility, and he had to believe that that was a possibility because he'd had so many bad things happen that he had to leave open that door, and so he, di he didn't have a, a deep sense of hope. And I understood exactly what he was talking about. But here's the problem that I've been able to identify in my own life. Fear loves to play in the reasonable. Except it doesn't present the reasonable as a possibility, it presents it as a probability. And the goal is to find a way to paralyze you in the process. So it will tell you a lie after lie after lie. And because it's possible, and it's telling you it's probable, I believe it. It's possible. It's possible that you could fail. It's possible that you could have cancer. It's possible that you could lose that relationship. You might not make the team. You might end up with a financial mess in your life. They might actually dislike you. Maybe you're going to get fired. Maybe they're going to gossip about you. All of that is possible. And anybody who tells you it's not is not being truthful. 
But the goal isn't for us to face this alone, which is what Adam and Eve and the children of Israel chose. And it led them both to horrible places. Uh, Band, you're going to help me real quick close. So if you want to come up here in a little bit, that would be great. Um, What was odd about both of these situations is that at the time that the children of Israel withdrew and at the time that Adam and Eve hid, God was attempting to do the opposite. He was attempting to get closer. He was attempting to use his voice to connect. He was attempting to find a way to get in your space, in their space so that they could have reached out. And instead, Adam and Eve hid. You want to know what the children of Israel do? Not far from this moment, they're going to go and build a golden calf standing outside a place where the presence of God is shaking the ground, lighting up the sky, fire burning, loud voice. Their fear is going to drive them to build another calf to worship. That's what this does. That's what fear does. It separates us from this, from this God who's trying to get close. And so the rabbi said, what would happen if you chose to confuse fear? And what they meant by that was the simple idea that fear and awe start the same. They have some of the same beginnings. You're going to feel it in your heart when that adrenaline kicks in. You're going to fear that sense of, I don't know how to process this. But they're saying, instead of following the track of going one, two, three, down to the failure where you flee, what if you found a way to use that as a trigger to use your voice to call out to God and to draw close to him instead? Fear would be so confused by this process, thinking that I've got you where I want you. I started all the kind of triggers that I need in your heart. I stirred up the adrenaline. I've left you confused. And I'm expecting you to hide from God and instead you draw close in that moment. See, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that these things won't happen or still couldn't happen. They could but who you're with changes the story. Who you decide to trust rewrites the story of your life. And the rabbis believed that you and I are not able to eradicate fear. That hope is dashed. But they thought if we could find a way to use it to hijack it, to put ourselves in a place where we would seek God instead of hide from him, our lives could be changed. We could have a different outcome than these disasters. If you'll remember, God said, I want you to hear my voice to keep you from sinning, which is exactly what would have happened if in the moment of crisis, Adam and Eve would have reached out for God right before they took that fruit, if they would have reached out for God. In the moment of crisis, as they were 
children of Israel were afraid and wanted to pull back. If they would have reached out, there was a voice there that would have reached to them. And my friends, I am convinced the same is true for you. God loves you. He wants to be close. He sent his son so that he could open up a different pathway for us where the Holy Spirit would be a part of your life where the voice of God is something that you would carry around with you. And in moments of fear, you have options. You could reach out for that voice who is trying to be close, who will help you write a different story than if you hide and run from him. I found this is hard to do. But I've also found it makes sense. And I'm working at recognizing these moments in my life as an opportunity for me to reach out to a God who has been reaching out to me the whole time. And I hope you'll do the same. Can I pray with you real quick? God, as we sit here quietly for just a few seconds, I'm convinced the Holy Spirit has things to say to each one of us. Your desire to draw close is unbelievable. A son was sacrificed for the closeness that you wanted to experience with us. And yet, in the face of the things that we fear, we sometimes conclude that you do not have our best interest at heart and we withdraw from you. God, I ask that you would allow our hearts to recognize the adrenaline, recognize the confusion, and to choose you. To choose to reach out to you with our voice to find that voice of the Holy Spirit who is right there to be with us. You want to comfort us, guide us, counsel us at times. God, life is hard. And it's nice to think that we're tough enough to take it. But the truth is we need you. Give us the courage to admit that and to reach out and find a God who's been reaching out for us the whole time. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.